Life as a mountain nymph is pretty simple. Hang around your assigned mountain and either avoid sleeping with Zeus or avoid getting in trouble for it. I screwed up the last part. So crazy ass Hera did her weird symbolic curse thing and made it so I can only talk back. I can never start a conversation, which was fine until he came along. And I really wanted to say something because he seemed so sweet in a dopey kind of way, but I couldn't. And so I had to sit and watch as his own addictive reflection pulled him beneath the water. Knowing I couldn't save him, all I had to do was embrace the void. Warning, this podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Episode 11 of Embrace the Void, where even if you're a senator, some white dude is totally going to cut you off. I am that white dude, Aaron, and with me as always is my partner in pain, G-Dubs. How you doing, G-Dubs? I'm doing well, man. <laughs> yeah? Are you enjoying our first fictional uh, recording that we're going to use in the future, but isn't, isn't going to pretend is actually in the present? Yeah, yeah. We're going to go back to past GW and past Aaron and pretend that it's future GW and future Aaron. Yeah. How about that current event that just happened recently, though? How shocking was that? Oh, man. Remember when Trump did that thing? Ugh, that thing. Oh, my God. I never expected him to do that. Um, But speaking of Trump, uh, we've got what I think is our hardest hitting uh, podcasting to date, which is a two part episode with my father, uh, Jesse Rabinowitz who uh, is going to talk with us about the nature of narcissism and whether Donald Trump classifies as a narcissist. And I think that this is really uh, a valuable interview, and I hope it will help people feel more comfortable talking about this material with other people in the ensuing collapse of society. Yeah, for the pending civil war. Yes. Are you ready? Shall we, shall we burn shiny and chrome? <laughs> yes. Okay, so for the next two episodes, we're going to harp on a subject that I'm particularly obsessed with. Uh, and for that, we have a very special guest with us, the Pater Finelius, my father, uh, Jesse Rabinowitz. Jesse, say hi to the void. Hi to the void. Um, so the topic we're in for is uh, <clears throat> the discussion of uh, Donald Trump and whether or not he's a narcissist and whether the... The claim that he is a narcissist is an important claim and whether it's one that we can get information from or not. And so uh, for that, we've, we've got uh, Jesse with us. Jess, why don't you say a little bit about your background? Um, I'm a clinical psychologist. Uh, I've been practicing uh, for a little over 30 years now. Uh, I practice outpatient psychotherapy with adults. Great. It's awesome. Uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to do this as a two-parter. Uh, first part, we're going to talk about the common reasons that people suggest that one shouldn't do what we're about to do. And then once we feel like we've addressed those sufficiently, we're going to do what we're going to do, which is going to be discuss narcissism. And then in part two, discuss whether Trump qualifies as a narcissist and what, if anything, that can tell us about his behavior going forward. 
so that's the basic idea. Um, I think just to be careful, we want to point out and say none of us have uh, checked in with Donald Trump personally or have interacted with him personally on which to make a diagnosis. When we're going to talk about the issue of talking about someone psychologically while not actually having done so. But for, I guess, the sake of just being clear, these are our opinions on this issue and we are merely expressing personal opinions. Um, so, yeah. So let's talk about the reasons why people shouldn't do what we're about to do. Uh, the three main ones are what's called the Goldwater Rule, effective diagnosing at a distance, and stigmatizing mental illness. Yeah, let's just go through them one by one. Yeah. So, uh, Jess, why don't you tell us a little bit, what is, about, what is the Goldwater Rule? So the Goldwater Rule is uh, an ethical guideline that was created subsequent to the 1963-4 election, uh, presidential election, uh, during which uh, Barry Goldwater, who was a Republican candidate for president, uh, was called out publicly by mental health professionals at the time uh, as being dangerously unstable and unfit for office. And uh, and wasn't that one of the first times the a presidential candidate was sort of publicly said or they they publicly used those terms unfit for office? I frankly don't know of any other situation before that. And then part of that is that uh, mental health as a field really came into its own in the public eye post World War Two. And nobody certainly did this about Eisenhower. Um, but I guess Goldwater was sufficiently extreme that it uh, alarmed a lot of people, including mental health professionals, as to what he might do if they gave him the, you know, the nuclear codes. Um, and so they called him out on it and they wrote some articles about it. And uh, after Goldwater lost the election, he brought a libel suit uh, against them and he won the libel suit. He won about a judgment. Oh, wow. Yeah, he won a judgment of about $75,000. So for anyone who's an OA listener will know how difficult it is to win a libel suit. Yeah, and anyone who's uh, one of our fans who's watching Roger Stone or whatever it is, um, me looking for Roger Stone or whatever the fuck it's called, uh, will now also have another thing to be angry about Barry Goldwater about, which is that he's part of the reason that we have a difficulty discussing these issues. He was one of the, the right. beginners of this problem. Right. Thanks, white men. <laughs> right. So subsequent to him having been uh, having won this libel suit, the American Psychiatric Association, which is one of the uh, three or four large mental health associations, came up with this ethical guideline that the other APA, the American Psychological Association, eventually sort of aped. It basically said that it was uh, unethical to diagnose someone that you've not interviewed personally face-to-face -face and done the proper diagnostic legwork uh, that normally psychologists, psychiatrists, and social workers do to make a diagnosis. Uh, and so that kind of made this practice a, a sort of a third rail in mental health uh, and poses a particular difficulty for those of us in mental health who feel like we have a dual responsibility. Uh, one, to our work with private patients uh, who have come to us for help, 
Also, our public responsibility as professionals who have some level of knowledge or expertise about human behavior and therefore have something to say about it when it comes to human behavior in the public square. Yeah. Can, can I ask you a quick question that uh, I apologize for my ignorance, but it was something that even Aaron and I weren't positive about. Could you help me understand the difference between a psychiatrist and a psychologist? Oh, sure. A psychiatrist goes through medical school and then does further training in psychiatry. Uh, it used to be that in terms of psychological treatment, prior to World War II, psychiatrists were the only game in town for treatment. They were the only ones who did treatment. Subsequent to World War II, psychologists began to uh, earn and claim territory in that area. Psychologists go through PhD programs. So we get doctorates where they get uh, a medical degree and then get certification as psychiatrists. Social workers go through a master's program and they can also diagnose. And uh, licensed counselors go through a master's program and they can also diagnose. Does Great. that make it clear? Absolutely. Thank you. Well, Great. And so what we can see here is there's this, uh, as we talked about before, the moral tensions, right? Tension between the, the good part of the Goldwater rule and the more problematic part. There is a reasonable concern about rampant overdiagnosing of public figures and the harm that that could potentially cause and the difficulties with uh, diagnosing individuals without having enough information about those individuals or their backstory or their situation. And then that being in tension with the, the desires of private individuals to want to express their particular views on the situation while also maintaining a private practice. Yeah. Right. Jesse, I'm curious to know your uh, um, personal opinion on on it. Do you think that the Goldwater rule sort of holds up muster, or in your opinion, is it invalid? I or, think it, or is, I, if a better term. Yeah, I think it creates difficulties, um, and so I want to sort of lay out where I think there are problems with it. Remember, the Goldwater rule comes about at a time when psychiatry is dominant. And when diagnosis is considered uh, a medical affair in private, sub subject to a really good set of guidelines for how you do that and what you uh, bring into it in terms of technique and considerations. Um, it's also uh, a part of, and we'll probably get to this later, it also is hatched within uh, a mental health arena that was largely subject to the medical model. The idea that the things that people come to psychiatrists and then later to psychologists and social workers and counselors to are bringing illnesses. This was controversial at the time, by the way, this whole notion, and it's controversial even now, uh, as we've seen an increasing medicalization of mental health uh, a biologicizing, if you will, of what it means to have the difficulties in living that we call mental health problems. So it in some ways it was created to protect our patients in the sense of saying, no, diagnosis happens in a private confidential environment based on certain guidelines that are not subject, say, to the political leanings of the diagnoser. Okay, so not biased by that. Uh, 
and for a certain purpose, basically for treatment. <clears throat> now, I, want, I wonder if there is some connection to, I believe it was, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe it was FDR was one who had polio. Mm -hmm. uh, and he, and the whole press basically didn't report on it. And they, and the way they filmed him, you never saw him in his wheelchair. Right. There was mm -hmm. sort of this trying to sort of hide. I wonder if there is some uh, residue yeah. with that sort of societal kind of pressure. Well, sure, because if we de if we designate an area of a person's life as private because it's their medical life, uh, essentially their health life, and we say, well, public figures still deserve some degree of privacy, that makes some sense. Uh, on the other hand, the people that have raised concerns uh, publicly about Trump uh, from the mental health field are not functioning as diagnosers and treaters. And there's where we get into the dual role issue, yeah. which is uh, psychologists, psychiatrists, social workers, in our codes of ethics, we are ethically bound both to certain guidelines of diagnosis and treatment, but we are also given an ethical responsibility to the public as educators. And uh, there's certainly in all of these uh, uh, camps, psychiatry, social work, psychology, counselors, uh, in all these camps, there are so social justice oriented practitioners who are in the public eye and who do comment on public issues and political issues out of their own expertise in understanding human behavior on the individual and collect collective level. Those of us that think that the Goldwater rule poses difficulties, see that as a very important function. And we don't see ourselves as outing a patient when we talk about Donald Trump's narcissism or uh, breaking some sort of ethical code against ethical treatment. We're not doing this in the frame of being treaters. We're doing this in the frame of, of public individuals who have certain expertise that might be important for the public to hear. Right. It, sound, it sounds to me it's it's no different than a climate scientist or, you know, a meteorologist coming out against policies of climate change relative to how it affects the earth or how it affects populations. Absolutely. Absolutely yeah. right. So 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 let's um, let's get into the meat of the, the the objection within the Goldwater, which is the second problem that I raised the the effectiveness of diagnosing at a distance. Right. Okay. So the point was made. None of the practitioners who spoke about Goldwater publicly had ever interviewed him in a psychiatric or psychological setting with all of the psychiatric and psychological tools, assessment instruments, and so on. Um, the, the problem with that is I can give a diagnosis after an hour with a patient. And in fact, I have to, more or less, because when we bill an insurance company, we meet with a patient, we may meet with them for an hour or two, interview them, understand what's happening. And then often we'll give a diagnosis to the insurance company uh, of this patient. Uh, we might bring in family members and interview them as well. We might give them assessments of certain kinds to get clear on what we think is happening diagnostically. And that, that's all true. Um, we have a wealth of data about 
Donald Trump. Uh, we have more data about him psychologically, behaviorally, familially than I will ever have of a patient that I meet for an hour, two hours, three hours, five hours. And do and you think that that's because of, like, if we're thinking about the Goldwater rule, which was in the 60s, right, correct if I'm wrong, uh, at that time, right, social media didn't really exist, right? The, the personal persona that we put out to the public was much, much more different. I would assume, like, that, that's my uneducated sort of assumption. Yeah, I mean, as, you, as with the example of FDR, uh, the private lives of politicians was very much more private. A guy in a wheelchair couldn't hide that now. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, we have so much data on Donald Trump, both data that he has offered and data that others in his life and others who have known him have offered. And so it's more analogous to a situation that most of us are familiar with in graduate school, where we're given a case history and asked to make a diagnosis. That's pretty easy to do. That's not that hard. And as we will get to when we talk about diagnosing Donald Trump or talking about whether he's a narcissist or has narcissistic personality disorder, this is not that hard a call, honestly. Uh, so we're talking now about um, the technicalities of the Goldwater rule as a barrier. But the truth is the actual practice of seeing who this guy is and what he's about ain't that hard. I mean, he's not that tough a case. So let me, let me ask uh, a couple devil's advocate questions relative to the so effectiveness of diagnosing at a distance. Are there tools that uh, uh, psychiatrists, psychologists use in those intimate sort of one-on-one -on -one in the room sort of personal engagements that you you can't attribute to a public figure because you're not doing those one-on-one? -on -one? Does that make I I, I mean maybe I'm not asking the right. I'm question. not sure. I, I he, he means like what tools would you have in oh, an sure. in-person interview with okay. Trump that would make it better than you have right now? Okay. Yeah. Right. So, so if he came in on his own, which he likely never would for reasons we might talk about when we talk about narcissists, um, you'd have the interview data, just finding out what it was doing there and what, what the difficulties were. You might subject him to psychological assessment. And there are a variety. There's a wealth of personality assessment tools that help diagnose whether a person is narcissistic or some other personality disorder or has what are called the axis two disorders, the anxiety disorders, depressive disorders, psychotic disorders. You could do that, okay? Uh, and you would, if you subjected him to some of these personality inventories, you might get some harder data than you would through a simple interview, that's for sure. But to tell you the truth, Many of us don't use those instruments because oftentimes it is unbelievably uh, apparent and obvious what's going on. Like Hannibal Lecter, they'll fold them into cranes. That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I, I imagine that with uh, similar to many other fields, uh, when when you first so like it, let's say you're a sculptor, right? The first time you try to sculpt something, it it 
takes a lot of like learning the basics. There's this concept called shuhari, which is a Japanese martial arts term, where shu is learning of the form, where you have to ascribe to the form exactly and learn specifically what it is. Once you've accomplished that, you then move to ha, which is where you can start to improvise, and then re, you've mastered the form, and now you can improvise and actually create new forms. So it seems to me that that someone like yourself, who's an expert in the field, who's done it for many years, you're, you don't have to think about, like, you don't have to go back to the textbooks and look things up as much because it's so ingrained in you that you have this uncanny ability to be able to recognize things almost instinctually, is my yeah. assumption. Yeah, basically, you begin to internalize certain decision trees. Diagnosis is, a, is about decision trees. The person begins talking, you start your little decision tree computer in your head. What are they claiming is the problem? What kinds of folks usually claim this as a problem? What are the rep requisite questions you'd ask to piece out uh, the difference between their perspective on the problem and what might actually be the problem and so on? So yeah, I mean, most of us uh, over a bunch of years develop a kind of uh, uh, a feel for it. And so we don't have to necessarily use all of the tools that we might have learned in graduate school. Sure. Okay. So that gives sort of the answer, I think, to the issue of the effect of diagnosing at a distance that we can say uh, that it's, it's not necessarily dysfunctional. There might be other things that you could get from someone in person, but you would also say that in person, a narcissist is very likely to deceive um, and wouldn't necessarily be more easily diagnosed by, by those specific instruments. Whereas in um, the vast amount of interviews we've seen of Donald Trump, the footage of him constantly, you start to see, and we'll talk about in, in the second half, some sort of examples of the kind of behaviors that would suggest this if you were doing a long-term case study of an individual. Yeah, actually, you raise a good point with that comment. Arguably, it's easier to diagnose narcissistic personality disorder if you know about the person from people around him and his surroundings and from seeing his behaviors in action over time or her behaviors in action over time. You are actually going to have a tougher time, I think, when they just show up as an individual in, in your office with some sort of problem or complaint because they do tend to deceive and they tend to deceive themselves. Mm -hmm. And so, frankly, uh, I, I sometimes have more trouble knowing if there's a narcissistic person in my office than if I had known a person in real life and seen them in action, because mm -hmm. the behavior tells the story in ways that their own insight and their own words aren't going to. Yeah, and it sounds like the amount of data also is is a big contribution to that as well. Even and and correct me if I'm wrong, but I would imagine that someone who has uh, either a different mental disorder or even not having a mental disorder, having the amount of data, like using Trump just as an example in this instance, the amount of data that you have on that person in terms of the interviews you've seen the interactions with other people, their opinions about them, uh, the tweets, everything. I would imagine that any other person who did that many things, you could probably assess their mental state, even if they weren't a narcissist. Is that you a fair assumption? Well, the more data you've got, the and, and, and especially the more 360-degree uh, data you've got, the better. Right. 
which is why sometimes we do ask people to bring in family members and get their take on things and so on. Sure. So let's talk about the third issue before we get to actually discussing what is narcissism, which is the concern that I actually get a lot from people who work with um, mental health issues. There's the concern of stigmatizing mental illness, that if you medicalize and then stigmatize people like Donald Trump, what you are saying is anyone who has bad behavior, this is the same problem with like stigma, like medicalizing um, shooters in in, mm-hmm. in uh, mass shooting cases is right. the concern that you're making everything about mental illness and then you're just shuffling all of the evil onto people with mental illness. Yeah. So, so this is a bigger issue because as I said earlier, this whole thing, uh, is hatched within a mental health environment that's heavily medicalized and that talks about illnesses and disorders. This is not a fact. This is construct, social construct. Okay? The way we conceptualize what, what we might call mental illness or mental disorders or personality disorders, the way we uh, construct that will make a difference in this question. Um, so the problems about stigmatizing mental illness come from the uh, sector that is there to protect the civil liberties of people who have psychological, emotional, mental difficulties, uh, because stigma is a big issue for those folks in the world, and it is a terrible problem. So I understand the concern. That being said, calling a personality difficulty a disorder or an illness is a choice that some make within my field. I don't think it holds water. And I don't think it holds water because it suggests illness in the sense of we think of, of germ theory. You know, we think of something the person gets that's separate from the rest of them as a human being. The truth is, if you don't come from the medical model in mental health, We certainly see uh, personality disorders as very exaggerated, extreme versions of normal human personality and behavior that have come about through a very complex mix of perhaps genetic uh, predispositions and a whole lot of nurture. In other words, a whole lot of environment. Epigenetic and also environmental growing up stuff. Okay. So if we're, if we're talking about the stigmatization of mental illness as a problem and talking about Trump as a narcissist, in essence, we're saying that we want to consider him part of a protected group of ill people who should have their uh, personal dignity and privacy respected. The truth is, when you're talking about personality disorders, for many of us, we're just talking about the kinds of normal personality stuff we all have taken to an extreme that causes difficulties in life. And I would imagine it's also like if if someone was a narcissist, and I'm not going to say Trump, if someone was a narcissist and uh, existed as, I don't know, a car salesman, right? There, you would know better than I do for sure whether or not that person sort of would have difficulties or not. But there's less of an issue with it, I'm going to say, which is a great term. But for someone who is the president of the United States, there's certain uh, 
I'm going to say features or characteristics of that person that I would imagine are detrimental to a lot of folks. Yes. So like for it, for instance, a, uh, an airline pilot, right? We don't want an airline pilot who is blind, for instance, right? Now that's not me being ableist. There's blind people can do plenty of amazing things and work in many, many, many fields. But that is one specific characteristic that you wouldn't want a pilot to have. Exactly right. Exactly right. You've upped the game in terms of the damage that a, a narcissist can do in the White House compared to what a narcissist can do to the 20 or 30 people around them that they interact with on a daily basis. There's another piece about the protection of Trump uh, and the concern about stigmatizing that's uh, perhaps a little more personal for me or a little trickier, which is... Um, You're going to say Aaron's a narcissist. No. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. As if that was ever in doubt. <laughs> <laughs> Narcissistic people do a tremendous amount of damage interpersonally in their lives to other people. It's part of, as we'll get into this in the diagnosis, it's part of what makes them narcissistic. Uh, and so the notion that we would treat Donald Trump, if he has a narcissistic personality disorder, with the same kid gloves and protectiveness that we might treat someone who suffers from major depression or generalized anxiety disorder or schizophrenia, for that matter, um, it doesn't smell right to me because the truth is uh, seeing him as a mentally ill person who deserves protection doesn't do justice to the damage he can do as a public figure and certainly as a man who has the, the nuclear codes and the keys to the castle. Yeah, that's probably a good segue to uh, why don't we define narcissism? Yeah, sounds great. Okay. Um, so I'm just going to cheat right off of the DSM, must be the DSM-5 something at this point. Uh, what, what's that stand for? So the DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. Uh, basically, it's the manual of diagnoses that we use when we make a diagnosis of somebody in mental health, uh, although that's now changing and we're having to change our codes to an international system. But the DSM and, is what everybody commonly knows. And is that a... a standardization that is regulated by, uh, I assume, some psychiatry or psychology organization? The DSM is the work of many hands within psychiatry, the American Psychi Psychiatric Association, but certainly contributed to by uh, at least psychologists, if not social workers, certainly psychologists, because it is the product of, of a huge amount of research and a huge amount, amount of science, basically. Yeah. I just want to I, I just want to make sure that we're putting this into the best context we possibly can. Okay. So right. the, so the DSM basically says that there are clusters of symptoms and that if a person has a certain number within a cluster you might begin to think that they have this difficulty or that difficulty. Okay? And that's how it works. Great. Uh the narcissistic personality disorder cluster kind of looks like this, okay? Here are some items amongst which a person needs to have five of them to qualify as a narcissistic personality, as someone with a narcissistic personality disorder. Great. Okay, so exaggerates their own importance. 
is preoccupied with fantasies of success, power, beauty, intelligence, or ideal romance, believes he or she is special and can only be understood by other special people or institutions, requires constant attention and admiration from others, has unreasonable expectations of favorable treatment, takes advantage of others to reach his or her goals, disregards the feelings of others, lacks empathy, is often envious of others or believes others are envious of him or her, shows arrogant behavior and attitudes. So you need five or more of those in order to uh, demonstrate that a person has narcissistic personality disorder, as well as the overarching uh, um, criteria for personality disorders totally, which is that these traits cause difficulty in their lives, creates dysfunction in their lives. So, so that's kind of, you know, when we talk about narcissistic personality disorder, that's what we're looking at. Uh, and can we examine just a couple of those? Because I could imagine, I, I couldn't reiterate the list to you uh, back, but it sounds like there might be a couple uh, which seem a little subjective or, or, how, or how, could you give us maybe even uh, just a brief example on uh, how each of those could manifest in a person? Not Trump specifically, just in a person? It's subjective in the sense that we have to make subjective judgments based on knowing the person either in our office or in the world as to whether they have these qualities in greater quantity than other people. Everybody's got a little bit of this. We all want to feel important. We all engage in fantasies of success or power or beauty. We all are vain. Uh, we all need attention and admiration from others. Uh, we all, at times, have difficulties with empathy, and we can all be prone to arrogance. So it's subjective in the sense that you are making, if you're only doing it as an interview, you're making that judgment based on what you observe, how often they talk about certain things, the way they behave towards you and talk to you. You may... If you have interviewed family members, you may be also bolstering that judgment based on what they're telling you about the kinds of encounters they repeatedly have with this person. So subjective, but subject to evidence, whether it's your own, the evidence that you witness as a practitioner, the words you hear them saying and the kinds of difficulties they report, and also what you observe them do in relation to others, whether it's me, you as the practitioner, or other people in their lives. Yeah, it sounds like uh, it's potentially more relative than subjective, per se. Would that, would that yes. be a fair characterization? That's right. And, in, and again, with personality disorders, we're talking about normal personality features that are in extreme when it comes to the person that you're examining, okay? Uh, so it's a matter of degree. And in fact, when I treat people... I see some people, say, who have some narcissistic traits or leanings, but who don't have the full Monty, if you will. And then sometimes you meet people who have the full Monty. And it's <laughs> very, very different, both in terms of how they present and how they operate in the world, and also different in terms of the impact they have on other people. Uh, and they have a different psychodynamics, okay? Because also what you're doing, and we haven't gotten into this, 
The DSM is about clusters of symptoms that are, you could say, observable or reportable. We also get into, in my work, the question of why is a person this way? What are the underlying internal psychodynamic processes or structures, you could say, that lean them in this direction? And so, you know, we're also learning about the person's background to understand, was this a background that might have created a narcissistic person? versus a dependent person, versus a depressive person, or an anxious person. It's interesting you bring that up, because uh, my question next is, I'm trying to, I'm, try, I'm struggling to find the sort of most sensitive way to ask this question, but is there any cultural basis on which these symptoms could manifest more so in one culture as opposed to another culture? Yeah, that's a great question. Psychology, psychiatry, mental health are cultural institutions. And that's a good, that's, I like that a lot. And again, this is why the medical model rubs some of us the wrong way, because it suggests in a kind of absolutist way that, that there are illnesses that afflict human beings regardless of who they are or where they come from. And in fact, difficulties in living, which is a, my a better term than mental illness, difficulties in living are a function of a very complex web, including culture, politic, history, national origin, familial culture, and everything else under the sun that affects a person. And so narcissism at this moment in our history in the West will be diagnosed uh, um, of certain people who in other cultures at other times and other parts of history, that wouldn't have stood out as a difficulty in living or a problem. There are aspects of how Donald Trump operates that would have been, in a sense, perfectly normal or acceptable for a leader, a king, a monarch at another time in history. And not even that long ago, right? His father taught him these sorts of ideas, like even... 30 years ago in America, someone like Trump would have been viewed much more positively for having what are roughly the same traits. Yeah, I mean, we may or may not get into this, but the whole notion of narcissism, because it's culturally constructed at a certain historical time, uh, is going to be subject to the fact that we have a different culture now when it comes to how we expect humans and how we expect men to deal with other human beings. And so we have changed our standards of what is acceptable behavior and what is either unacceptable or dysfunctional behavior. Right, like there was a time when it was not only acceptable, but expected for school teachers to hit children. And nowadays we would, we would call that profoundly inappropriate. Yes. And potentially criminal. So right. let me ask a question. Sure. So, for example, looking at one of the specific things on there is the, the low empathy is is one of the, the main problems of this cluster that ties these things together. Right. Do you see within um, psychology a higher prevalence of low empathy issues amongst men who are raised in a culture that tells men to suppress their emotions? There's no question. Is it as transparent as easily as that? There's no question. Okay. And, and, and I would suggest that a person like Donald Trump is a function of those cultural forces that are passing into 
uh, a kind of uh, no longer acceptable category of behavior, especially for males, but at one time was considered normal, sometimes even admirable. The, the notion that a monarch wouldn't want to be swayed by their feelings and their sensitivities for other people in making those very difficult decisions that leaders had to make. Uh, so we could say that Donald Trump, in some respects, is the emblem of a dominator, patriarchal uh, um, culture that privileges this kind of behavior in males, lionizes and idealizes it. And we could probably see the roots of that coming all the way back to the tribal cultures that eventually become the Old Testament uh, mythologies, you know, the tribal war guard, god culture that lionizes and idealizes capricious, jealous, powerful, uh, at times cruel gods or leaders. Yeah, you want me to visualize Henry Plantagenet, but I swear to God, I'm only thinking of Ron Burgundy the whole time you're talking. <laughs> right, he's Ron I'm, Burgundy I'm like, now. I, I, I am a really big deal. Right, right. He's Ron Burgundy now when he says, I'm a man like the men that, that <laughs> built the railroads. He is speaking truthfully. Oh God, now we're just going to do Ron Burgundy. You know, Ron Burgundy's minutes. a joke because he's a cultural antiquity now to us. Sure. You know, which is why we're seeing this mass migration out of Fox News of ales and so on, is we're, we're seeing the decoronation of these as the people we want as leaders. Mm -hmm. So I, I have one last sort of question before we uh, sort of end this, uh, this episode, and that is, uh, in, in your career, have you had, without obviously... Um, infringing on your sort of patient what's that what's that terminology confidentiality Conf yeah, confidentiality. yeah client patient uh, privilege yeah thank you thank you uh, uh have you dealt with narcissist in your past sure um it, oh. and a caveat yeah. <laughs> you don't i don't see a lot of you know like i don't see a lot of the full monty in my practice okay and i haven't in 30 years you don't see or i don't get to see a lot of full-on narcissistic personality disordered people like the man that we're going to be talking about in this in the next segment. And that's because they tend to make more trouble for other people than for themselves in terms of subjective distress. When narcissistic people with bad narcissistic personality disorder, what they do with subjective distress is they take it out on other people. Whereas most of us normal, nice, neurotic people, when we have subjective distress, we take it out on ourselves. We blame ourselves. We beat ourselves up. So I like to say, I don't get to see a lot of narcissists in my practice, but they send me a lot of patients. <laughs> <laughs> is, is it also true that because narcissists have trouble with introspection, they don't tend to last well in, right. in that environment? Yeah, in general, this is sort of the conventional wisdom is narcissists real full-on narcissists will frequently only come to therapy when they've had some sort of major loss or humiliation that has momentarily uh, disabled their narcissistic defense structure. So they're kind of in pieces. 
Maybe they've had a spouse leave or they've been fired from a job or they've been arrested. It's their own hubris. Or something like that. And so they they come after the fall from hubris. And if they're really a good narcissist, they will reconstitute their defenses fairly quickly and be gone like a shot because they're not going to get anything out of the therapy hour after that. Yeah. There's a play I would recommend to you and to just about anyone uh, that actually would demonstrate this pretty well. It's a play called Farragut North by Bo uh, Willimon, Mm. who's the same guy who writes uh, House of Cards. Mm -hmm. Uh, Farragut North, for those that don't know, is actually one of the stops on the, on the subway Metro line in DC. uh, And it deals with the people who are behind the scenes of a campaign. Um, it, a, it's a really, really great play, and B, sort of see this fall of hubris through a, uh, um, a person who exhibits these exact sure. symptoms. Makes perfect sense. And, and why you will see more narcissistic personality disordered people in politics or in media or in the entertainment industry or in other uh, situations of some sort of leadership or public eye is they crave power and they crave admiration. And so they're drawn to it. You can find many pages on the internet about how do I deal with a narcissistic boss? And part of that is because dealing with narcissistic bosses, I can tell you, is a terrible situation. And part of it is because who is attracted to power? Who is attracted to those leadership roles? Often people with narcissistic issues. Great. So maybe to wrap up at the end here, maybe we could get that list one more time. I think you made a really good point that you don't see a lot in your practice, but I think we could all say that we have probably all known at least one person who fits into this category. And maybe our listeners, as they are waiting for our second half, could listen, could consider this list and consider if they know anyone who fits into this category and how that produces certain behaviors from that individual that we might see in Trump. Yeah, it's probably something that we could also put in the show notes as well with the yeah. reference to the exact, uh, what was it, DRM? or uh, The DSM, the DSM. Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. Great. But so Yeah, one more time. Okay. Yeah. So you got to have five or more of these. Number one, exaggerates own importance. Number two, is preoccupied with fantasies of success, power, beauty, intelligence, or ideal romance. Number three, believes he or she is special and can only be understood by other special people or institutions. Number four, requires constant attention and admiration from others. Number five, has unreasonable expectations of favorable treatment. Number six, takes advantage of others to reach his or her goals. Number seven, disregards the feelings of others, lacks empathy. Number eight, is often envious of others or believes other people are envious of him or her. And number nine shows arrogant behaviors and attitudes. And I want to apologize to anyone who has experienced a lot of upfront narcissistic personality behavior and who might be genuinely put off by hearing that description again because (laughs) of how really upsetting these kind of individuals can be if you're around them for long periods of time. They do create a lot of trauma. Yeah. And, and arguably, we are going through a collective national trauma. Yeah, I, I would yeah. agree. And I think I, I just want to put one little caveat at the end here and, and sort of pull from 
uh, Andrew and go, uh, we should, you should not be taking psychiatric advice from this podcast. Yes. And I am not diagnosing anybody on this podcast as a psychologist. I'm sharing opinions as a public citizen who has psychological expertise. Right. We want to thank our new patron, Teacher Martin, and our top patrons, Dave Maslich, and especially Jesse Rubinowitz, for sharing his expertise with us on this episode. If you'd like to become a patron, go to patreon.com slash embrace the void. Join us next time where we take this new information about narcissism and analyze President Trump. As always, remember, you are the void, and the void is you. So I'm out hunting, like I do, and this crazy broad comes running up to me. She don't say nothing, she just starts trying to grope me. Usually that's my thing, but she's like a four, and anything I say, she just repeats back to me, which is also usually my thing, but I don't know. It feels like a trick. Maybe there's cameras, so I bail. I head down to the stream, and there, I see the most gorgeous creature ever, just under the water. I'm talking an 11, maybe a 12. And I'm staring and staring, trying to get something going, when I realize it's me. I'm the 12. And I realize that there's just never going to be anything better for me than to sleep beneath the water with myself. So I do. Because what the hell? You gotta embrace the void. Warning. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 12 of Embrace the Void, where we are fatalists, not nihilists. And yes, that distinction matters. Stop calling me pedantic. Fuck you guys. My name is Aaron, and as always, I'm here with my good friend G-Dubs. How you doing, GW? I just can't stand your pedanticness. That was a call out to exactly one uh, audience member who is really excited right now. Really excited, I hope. Um, <laughs> so today, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to spend very little time on this dicking around because we have a lot of more important dicking around to do in the conclusion of our narcissism segment with my father. See what happens next on the Trump episode. Yes, steal things from uh, Is This Real Life? They won't know. Good plan. Nope. They'll never Hashtag know. Hashtag shit. To That's get future fans. GW's problem. Right? And now, narcissism. Okay, welcome back for part two of our discussion of narcissism and Donald Trump. I want to once again welcome back our special guest, my father, Jesse Rubinowitz. Hey, guys. Uh, so, in order to get us rolling, we're going to start with just a quick recap of the description of the, uh, uh, the mental distra- mental problem, the difficulty. What was the term that's used? I'm sorry. Uh, well, problem of living? We could call the problem of living that is narcissistic personality. Right. So, so, why don't we start with just a recap of what it is to have the problem of living that is narcissistic personality okay. disorder. This is from the DSM uh, five, I guess, which mm-hmm. is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual that psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, and counselors use in order to diagnose somebody's difficulties in living. Uh, and this is the one for narcissistic personality disorder. In order to diagnose somebody with this, they have to have five or more of the following characteristics. 
Number one, exaggerates her own importance. Number two, is preoccupied with fantasies of success, power, beauty, intelligence, or ideal romance. Three, believes he or she is special and can only be understood by other special people or institutions. Four, requires constant attention and admiration from others. Five, has unreasonable expectations of favorable treatment. Six, takes advantage of others to reach his or her own goals. Uh, seven, disregards the feelings of others, lacks empathy. Eight, is often envious of others or believes other people are envious of him or her. And nine, shows arrogant behaviors and attitudes. And the overarching diagnostic criteria is that these difficulties have to be extreme enough to cause dysfunction or problems for that person in their life. Yeah, that's great. And I think, so there's two quick things to recap. One, we're all giving opinions and you shouldn't take psychiatric advice or psychological advice from this podcast. And uh, uh, I forgot what the second thing is. So we'll just say there's one thing. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe the second one is nothing I say today is me giving this person a diagnosis as a practitioner or as someone treating him. I'm a public citizen who has expertise in psychology by virtue of my background. And so I'm expressing opinions about whether or not Donald Trump fits the category of narcissistic personality disorder and what the implications are of yeah. that. And, and I actually remember my second thing. If you want more details about what uh, the issues are with doing this and with what uh, narcissist is in more detail, try to listen to part one of this podcast. Yeah, go back and listen to part one. Uh, but once you've done that, let's uh, now, I think, maybe look at that list a little bit and say, you know, you were saying last time that you don't feel like it's a very hard case to make when we actually get to the diagnostic part. And then we can talk about the, pe the, one, the one individual we know of who strongly disagrees with our particular view on the subject. Right. So, for example, exaggerates own importance. You feel that there's no question about this. I don't think there's anybody opinion, any matter question. Opinion. I think everybody knows this about Donald Trump is that he tends to exaggerate his importance in the world. He is the uh, the center of the universe. Right. Yeah, I I, I like don't next I don't know many people that put their name on buildings other than like Maybe where the name is the name of the corporation, like maybe like, you know, Kaiser Hospital or something. Right. Yeah. Um, I love the next one, especially is preoccupied with fantasies of success, power, beauty, intelligence or ideal romance, because I, I think Donald Trump has the kind of nouveau riche, uh, uh, fresh money, weeks, weak uh, uh quality view of things like beauty and success and power he likes strong men like putin he likes beauty that is of the, the most sort of classical modern uh conventional 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 yes the conventional is the term i'm looking for right he likes he likes his men intelligent but not bookish and he likes his women complacent and he believes in you know classical romantic ideals of gender roles and all these sorts of things well, let me, I, I want to ask a little bit further, especially Jesse, about this. So the criteria was that it's fantasies of these things. So how can, right. how can we know, again, me playing devil's advocate, how do we know that it's fantasies that he's having about those things and not something else? Well, look at his verbalizations. 
I have the biggest this, I have the best that, I have the most that, you are going to be so tired of how great we're all going to be because of me. You know, it's a, it's a little bit of a leap, but not much of a leap to suggest that the man is preoccupied mm -hmm. with his own greatness and right. with impressing everybody with his own greatness. Perfect. A normal, a normal proud father would say, my daughter looks gorgeous on her wedding day. He talks about how he would bang his daughter if he could. Are, are you suggesting that your dad didn't say you looked pretty on your wedding day? He did say that, <laughs> but he didn't then try to make a move on me. You know, I just thought even it would though be I was a, married I thought it would be like a bitch. in that setting on that day, you know, because I'm not a narcissist. I have a little bit of behavioral restraint, right. a little bit of self-control. Great. Uh, I love the the be he be, uh, believes he is special, and the second part of that is can only be understood by other special people or institutions. Right. So when he's dissed, mm -hmm. he discredits whoever is doing the dissing as obviously in some way unfit to judge or to see him for who he is. So I have another question about that. We had talked before about the cultural context in which someone is, and historical context in which someone is living, and how some of these behaviors or what have you, uh, mental states, are relative within those contexts. So yes. if the current context, which is essentially Aaronized generation, where we were all grown up to be special flowers, that we're all special and we mm -hmm. get participation awards, is that a... <laughs> In my opinion, it's it's a negative thing, uh, but in it's obviously in a societal sense in our current culture, a positive thing for everyone to feel that they are special in some way. So is that a negative trait? Uh, no. I, and I think that the uh, attacks on millennials uh, around that are, are misguided. And I'll tell you why. Yeah. The reason that millennials are raised with a sense of being valued, treasured, or special as people is because as a culture, we've come to realize that children need self-esteem, not just from their achievements or accomplishments, but simply because they're human beings. I mean, this is actually, this is the consequence of 2,000 years of Judeo-Christian spirituality that says that everybody is made in the image of God. That's actually where that comes from. And there's nothing in the playbook of raising a millennial that suggests that you raise them to be blind to their flaws or shortcomings, or blind to the fact that they may be good at some things and not good at other things. Donald Trump is different from that. Donald Trump was raised by two parents who apparently were enchanted with the idea of royalty. Uh, he talked himself about how his mother was so transfixed by the royals and watching the coronations or the weddings and so on. Donald Trump was raised by parents <clears throat> who raised him as a little prince, as a little king, you know? So there's a difference between you're special because you're a human being like all other human beings, and you are all in the image of the divine. And you're better than everyone else. Or you're better than everybody else. That's yeah. that's a narcissistic categorization. Great. And the second part, second part really helps. It's the part uh, the taking criticism understood. You can only be understood by special people or institutions. Right. The flip side of that is a normal, healthy individual who has normal self-esteem can also take constructive criticism and grow from it. 
narcissists can't accept any sort of criticism and it stunts their growth. So all of the people who were hoping that Donald Trump was going to get into office, listen to serious people, grow as an individual, make better choices, were betting on the wrong horse because he is, if he has this uh, issue, this difficulty, then he is not going to change and become suddenly open to criticism about his behavior. Right. And we've, we've heard that with individuals like um, when, when McMasters has to overrule him on defense stuff or quietly go behind his back to cover up mistakes he made in foreign policy stuff, it enrages Trump by all accounts because he feels like he's being belittled or, or under, undermined. Right. Great. Um, rather than seeing that he just isn't an expert and needs experts. He thinks he's an expert on literally everything. Yeah, never, no one knew healthcare was going to be so complicated. Nobody knew. Nobody, Nobody knew. No, right. Nobody. Right. right. Number four is very interesting mm -hmm. because it's, it goes to the psychological dynamics of a person like him and of narcissistic people in general. Requires constant attention and admiration from others. The psychodynamic uh, analysis of the narcissistic personality disordered person has a funny paradox in it. People can become NPD or narcissistically personality disordered if they have suffered intense, intense abuse that so damages their sense of self that they develop a very, very thick uh, compensatory defense of elevating themselves above other people as a compensation for feeling like a piece of shit because they've been treated like a piece of shit. Trump is an interesting character. His father was a very difficult man who apparently was very hard on him and his brother when they were growing up. Right, Sucks which Trump, Trump has said himself. <clears throat> said himself, and apparently there's some talk that the brother was not part of the family business because he wanted no part of it, which is not uncommon. Uh, I, I could imagine, although I haven't read this, that the father probably did his best to pit the brothers against each other because he believed that men should be uh, should be steeled on on the uh, on the uh, in the crucible of competition I just and saw aggression. Saw this of the galaxy. <laughs> so, right, right. So so on the one hand, his father is Thanos. No question. So on the one hand, he has a father who may have been severely emotionally abusive of him as a human being, in in the. Uh, in the pursuit of toughening him up as a man. And he had a mother who, there's not a lot of data about their relationship, but it's, it seems possible that she raised him as a prince and may even have lionized or idealized him. Now I'm making a leap here, okay? Because there isn't a ton of data that's pretty freely available about their relationship. Um, but I have a, a sense from the little bit that I've read that that may have been a part of it. So sometimes narcissists are made through just horrible abuse. And sometimes narcissists are made by parents who treat them like princelings and princesses mm -hmm. and who lead them to believe that the world will do the same with them. And so, which is, I'm sorry, fin fin no, no, finish your thought. No, which again goes to that millennial thing. You guys are not raised that way on the whole, but you are raised to respect yourselves in a healthy way, perhaps in a way that other generations weren't before you. Yeah. That's different from being raised to be grandiose about yourself. And at the same time, have a very <coughs> fragile actual self-esteem. And to have an actually fragile self-esteem, because if you raise someone to believe they're a princeling, 
then when their actual flaws are pointed out, it causes tremendous dissonance and stress for them. And with the narcissist, that means they have to turn around and beat the shit out of somebody else. Okay? The narcissist lives on a pedestal, and the thing they fear is being in the hole. And so when they feel they're in the hole, they're going to look for somebody to step on in order to get back up on the pedestal and make that person the goat, which is what makes them so charming to be around as human beings. Yeah. And you, so you had mentioned that there's a paradoxical nature to it. And the paradoxical nature is that the narcissist can ex have these traits because it can come in two opposing ways. That No, that, that the traits can come from either having been horribly abused and having their self-esteem ravaged day after day in childhood, or paradoxically, it could be the exact being put opposite. on a pedestal from yeah. day one and told that they, you know, that they shit gold, right. basically. Yeah. That, and it, that's it what I was trying like to Trump say. I may, both, I may have been right? saying it badly, but yeah. yeah. No, that's good. Yeah. It sounds like Trump got the perfect mix of those things, possibly, where... The mother was giving him one of them and the father was giving him the other and he came out of it very, very damaged. Certainly possible. Again, there's a paucity of data right. as to his relationship with his mom. So we don't know a lot. And, right. You know, again, that's part of the problem of talking about the psychodynamics of people who either you haven't interviewed or uh, who are in the public eye, but there may not be data about certain pockets of their lives. Which is excellent. And it, um, the two of the uh, the next two things are things you were just talking about, and they are how we can address that problem a little bit, which is has unreasonable expectations of favorable treatment and takes advantage of others to reach his or own go her own goals. Yes, yeah, so there it is. Those we can nail down without question, without right. having to um, uh, make any assumptions about his private life. Yeah, and we know that he has unrealistic expectations of favorable treatment because he spent two years campaigning where he beat the crap out of his opponents, said horrible, horrible things that normally are not said in that, uh, in that environment, in that, in that public environment about your opponents. Uh, he said all of that stuff. And then when his uh, ability to govern, when his judgment is questioned, uh, when he comes under investigation for what appear to be, you know, potentially... Uh, uh, actionable actions, he says, I'm being treated worse than any president or leader in history. Yeah, yeah. Which gives you some idea of how far from the pedestal he thinks he's being treated. Yeah, I yeah. think his, his quote was something like, no politician in history has ever been treated worse or something like that, right. which <laughs> right. is such an outlandish right. claim. Right, it's insane. And it's insane and, and speaks to what he has come to expect in his life and what he is shocked to receive now that he is this much in the public eye and under this much scrutiny. And it can get muddied because the GOP has long been using this practice of, of hassling the ref when it comes to the media by, by claiming that they are getting poor treatment. And you could just say, well, Trump is just playing that same game. But I think it goes farther. I think you can tell Trump is genuinely enraged by the fact that he's not getting positive treatment, not just because it affects his goals, but because he needs it. It's why he was back out there holding these big rallies to try to get love and affection when right. the media wasn't giving it to him. Right. And, and even the statement that you described, GW, uh, the worst, what did you say? The worst, uh, uh, the worst of any politician in history. 
right? right. Not so, to have been shot. In so head. even that speaks to his grandiosity that the persecution he has suffered is worse than any. Right. Okay. Yeah. Even that is a kind of a reversy of his of his grandiosity as a human. He will be the greatest martyr. The cross he bears is so big; it is huge. Right. <laughs> it is the nicest. Right. It is the most awesome cross you have ever been nailed to. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, there it is. And then, then of course, you've got the takes advantage of others to reach their own goals. We know from his business activities that he has often shortchanged small contractors who he knew that he could get away with screwing over. Right. And then defrauded veterans and, and pensioners through Trump University. He's willing to throw literally anybody under the bus, as far as we can tell. Right. He cheated and he lied. And he learned much of how to do that in the public eye from one of his mentors, Roy Cohn, who was one of his first attorneys. Roy Cohn was a classic, classic narcissist, also raised to be a princeling. And he taught Trump to use the law in order to cheat, lie, and steal. Well, I wonder, so I, I think this is one of the very few, if not the only one, I sort of want to push back on of, I, I don't think I don't think Trump is out of the norm in that if you put him in the context of businessmen who he's grown up, his father was a businessman, he's grown up around businessmen, and that is all fueled by capitalism, which is all about pushing yourself to try to get better than everyone else, screw everyone else. Yeah, so this speaks to the cultural aspect of narcissism, which we talked about in the last segment, Yeah, that in certain historical periods and in certain sectors of our life that kind of narcissism is idealized yeah. yeah although it's it's not as ubiquitous as we see so look at walmart and look at costco walmart is the classic model of screwing the little guy in order to maximize your profits the the family that owns walmart right. whereas costco the exact analogous opposite. big box store treats people very, very differently, has a very different social persona and a very different way of dealing with their employees and so on. And and part of that is because in our traditional mindset, we assume that the narcissistic slash sociopathic low empathy disorder personality type will be more effective in a leadership role in this cutthroat kind of business or something like that. And that can be true in certain cases, but we also see that human beings as social creatures benefit from uh, reciprocal trust. And you can't build reciprocal trust in business relationships with a narcissist. So it can actually, this is why Donald Trump can't get anyone to loan him money in America. And he's got to go to Russia to get loans because he's not trustworthy. And that's part of the, the, you know, when you constantly screw people over, you eventually undermine your own well-being, as we were saying one of the main tests we want to be keeping in mind here is, is Trump making his own life and the life of others around him worse because of his state, because of his whatever. Well, I guess my, right. my question is, if if it's all about relativism of a certain trait, it seems to me like in a capitalist society that that is something that is not just a grandiose trait that we sort of idealize in some sort of way, but it's also something that a lot of people sort of push towards. And I agree with you that there's there's the Costco example, but it's definitely the exception to the rule since most companies sort of right. treat their employees like shit. And especially but, the Republican but, Party with, with the uh, AHCA. 
Right. But if you look at the society as a whole, in terms of our norms for business as a society, we have moved from an acceptance of the unfettered capitalism of the robber barons into, in the progressive age, uh, a demand by we the people that the uh, the winning aggression within business be tempered by what is needed for the individual citizen to have a reasonably decent life. You know, I I sort of wish that was. I really, really wish that was true. But if you look at, and I'm I'm sorry, this is going just a little bit off topic. But if you look at like the the wage gap between CEOs and the little guy over the last sixty years, it's definitely increased. Ten, yes, like, multiple fold. Though that was, a I, recent, I don't think the progress. Problem. Yeah, and I don't think the progress is linear. I agree with you. I think I, I do believe in the progress of the culture. I don't think it's been linear, and obviously, right now we're in a moment of retrenchment uh, where the robber barons have have clawed back power. Yeah. Really, since 1980, yeah, it's the 80s. since Ronald Reagan, since right around since, 1980, since, for some reason, since when Reagan basically ushered in the largest transfer of wealth back to the wealthy. Right. Exactly. Um, and, and so, so let's, let's assume for the sake of argument that we can see that our ca our capitalist culture has moved towards a higher empathy kind of capitalism. We see it in the Super Bowl ads, for example, that are all catering towards social progressive mindsets rather than the conservative tradition. For the most part, you watch, you know, you, there's a lot of multiculturalism. There's a lot of LGBTQ But what about the Pepsi love. thing, right? Like, I think it's like, I mean, but th that's but it was, them it was, just trying to sell, you know, their widget. Sure. But that's the point. They're trying to sell to the high empathy people. They're not trying to sell to the low. They're doing a terrible job of it, but they are still trying to cater up to create a more empathetic persona which and, and the reason I bring this up is because the key feature, the most important takeaway, I think, from discussing narcissism is this next one, which is disregards the feelings of others and lacks empathy. It is the it is not the egomania. It is the low empathy egomania that really classifies a narcissistic personality disorder, I think. Right. Um, so, for example, one of our favorite characters on um, uh, Jane the Virgin uh, Rogelio, I don't know if you watched the show, but Rogelio is this wonderful character, this father character who's a narcissist. He's definitely a narcissist, but he loves his family and he's a, he's a, he's a more high empathy, I think, kind of narcissist. Right. And because of that, and because he's in a show where they don't play out the actual consequences of narcissism as much, he's more likable. But someone like Donald Trump, I think what's the defining feature is that he doesn't appear to have any empathy at all not in the least and therefore can't perceive the inner worlds of other people and can't associate those inner worlds with his own inner world and he's limited to a very select kind of emotions like anger and fear and yeah other people other people are objects for him to operate on and to use as opposed to human beings with their own feelingful moral center that require the same respect that he demands from others of himself. Sure. I, so uh, I, I keep playing this side of it. I just want to make sure that we're it's thinking fine. about it as objective as possible. So sure. how do you then categorize or how do you justify his sort of Syrian reaction, right? When he went and bombed Syria, it was from all accounts, it was his reaction to seeing that, that young kid, that child, bloody. That's that uh, seems to like, although know, although the outcome 
we could debate whether or not the outcome specifically yeah. was a good one or not. I think that's a separate yeah. thing. I think yeah. that at least that one instance that sh demonstrates to me an empathy. Uh, at the risk of sounding cynical, it's one data point, and I'm not entirely sure I buy that that was his motivation. Yeah. Now it may have been. Look, all of this is on a slider. All diagnosis of personality disorders is by degrees. Donald Trump is not a hardcore, as far as I can tell, not a hardcore what we call sociopath or psychopath. He's too needy for affection to be that. You know, if you look at somebody like uh, Michael, uh, was it Rooker's character and Port Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer? Oh, yes, killer. Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. If yeah. you look at that, or, or, or perhaps Hannibal Lecter, although Lecter is much more playful. Right. But if you look at, at Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer and you see the face of a sociopath or a psychopath who has no interest or need in the affections of others and who really does view other humans as inert objects, that's a little different from a narcissist like Donald Trump. I think he's capable of feeling sad, shocked, or horrified, as most of us are, in seeing the picture of the little kid, you know, from the Syrian gassing. When you make a diagnosis about somebody, you don't take into account one data point, you take into account many. Absolutely. And, and I, and I just so, want to make sure that we do, right? Like that if, sure, there, right. if there are potential uh, uh, pieces of data or facts that could be to the contrary, I just want to make sure we discuss them and yeah. weigh it as, as part of the whole. Here's, Look, here's an analogy for that, uh -huh. for what you just gave. Think about uh, the character in Apocalypse Now played by Robert Duvall, okay? The the uh, the major uh, yeah. who, who's I love the smell of napalm in the morning. Right. So, so there's a sequence in it where after they have decimated this village, he's walking through the village and there's a guy holding his guts with a with a <sighs> uh, a pie pan, mm -hmm. and and the uh, the South Vietnamese soldier says he's a dirty VC. He can drink patty water. He says he's thirsty, and and Duval makes a big show of saying. Get out of here. This man, if he can hold his guts in and be brave enough to fight, he can drink from my canteen. And he gives him the canteen and then hears that the famous surfer Lance is among their number. And he turns away and drops the canteen and goes looking for Lance to meet this famous surfer and leaves the guy lying there with his guts falling out of his body. His empathy he offers it up in a kind of heroic way, but it's paper thin. And I think that's probably true of Trump's empathy. I, I think it's I, I probably, think probably momentary and paper thin. What? Here's why I think we don't have to say probably is because if his empathy was genuine, the next statement after we're going to bomb Syria would have been, and we're going to drop this travel ban and let refugees into the country. Absolutely. Because we, you know, or we're going to you know, substantially increase our foreign aid because we see the human humanitarian crisis going on here and we're going to bring everything we can to bear on it. That, that's but a good point. But he doesn't point. do yeah. that. That's a great right? point. He, he does the narcissist thing, which is, oh, well, they did something, you know, that bad guy did something bad, so I'm going to punch him in the nose right. and then I will have completed my revenge fantasy and I can move on to the next thing. Exactly. That's great. Um, so, great. So I think... Um, the last thing we have here, which shades a little bit into another issue, is um, is often envious of others or believes other people are envious of him, which shades a little bit into the discussion, I think, of Donald Trump's paranoia. 
Um, I think there's something to be said about the idea that all narcissists are a little bit paranoid because they're always in that fragile ego place where they're afraid that someone is going to see through their disguise or someone is going to call them on something or they're going to be embarrassed. Um, And I think, you know. Well, he's tremendously belligerent. Mm -hmm. And and yet in his world, in his mental world, his belligerence is acceptable because A, he's this great person and so he can do what he wants. And B, he has this notion that his belligerence is justified by the fact that it's a difficult and dangerous world out there and people are going to get each other. He has a basic paranoid worldview in that way. He was raised by a, you know, probably a cutthroat businessman father, and he was raised to be a cutthroat businessman himself. And so that that personality type is always prone to a little bit of paranoia because they're always jealously protecting what they have and protecting themselves against what they imagine to be an aggressive world, much of which is a paranoid projection of their own aggression. And and I think the really good evidence for this is, you know, he famously talked about how he could go on to Times Square and shoot and kill someone and his supporter, mm-hmm. he wouldn't lose any supporters, right? But at the same time, he won't release his tax returns. So I think that sort of calls into the paranoia a bit, right? He, oh, sure. yeah. he kept saying he was going to and then didn't wind up doing it. And and if he would have done it months and months and months ago, all of his supporters wouldn't have get, given a damn, even if there was Russian connections or loans or whatever. Uh, um, and I think that might feed into his paranoia a bit or be, well, be examples yeah. of paranoia. I think absolutely. The narcissist is terrified of humiliation, okay? Because they have this pride thing. They are they are hubris. And so they're always on the lookout for slights. Narcissists are hypersensitive to slights that they believe have humiliated them because they have this fragile ego and because they're, you know, they're so terrified that they'll be revealed. Uh, um they because they have to obscure anything that would throw negative light on themselves they live in a world that's terribly distorted and they're always looking for a sign that they're going to be called out they're always looking for a sign that their secret fear which is humiliation will be revealed when someone slights them or treats them as less than grandiose as they see themselves yeah um i want to throw another thing on this this bonfire of depressing uh, which is, this is one that we can't as effectively, I think, comment on, but needs to be brought into the discussion, which is there are some people who include in their analysis of Trump's behavior suggestions of early onset dementia. Mm. And I, I think that there is something to that, though I think Jess can say a little bit about how it's hard. It's a little harder to diagnose. I think if you think about the fact that a narcissist is always afraid of being embarrassed or exposed... And then you start to take away the narcissist's memory or ability to be in control of the situation. You you increase the volatility of the situation exponentially. I, I think that's certainly true. Whether or not he is suffering from early onset dementia is better answered uh, within actually a clinical situation where the kinds of very specialized neuropsych testing mm-hmm. assessment tools can be brought to bear. Because especially in early onset dementia, it's hard to tell. 
it's quite honestly very difficult to tell, you know? Right. Uh, and people can go for a couple of years with they or their uh, families not quite so sure of what's going on. I think your point is accurate. If he is beginning to suffer some sort of cognitive decline, it is going to slam headlong into his narcissism because this is a man who doesn't like to think he's ever wrong. This is a man who doesn't like to be embarrassed. This is an, a man who doesn't like to be seen as vulnerable or frail or in some way dysfunctional or problematic. And how, and how do you think... All right, so this is pure speculation, but what do you think uh, is going on inside of his head when Melania has been slapping away his hand? I think he's got a, <laughs> a I think he's got a very very fast, well-developed narcissistic defense in in his head that just dismisses it in some way or other mm -hmm. as, you know, she's being this or she's being that or, you know, she's in a mood that day. You know, all the ways that men have always dismissed any kind of negativity from from their wives or girlfriends or or partners is he probably sees her on a much lower level than himself. You know, and I think what we're going to see and this will this can move us into our discussion of what's going what we're going to see going forward. If what we are saying is true, hypothetically, uh, he, he's going to have defense mechanisms like any narcissist does to protect his ego and prevent um, loss of control. It, it will work well against Melania's hand slaps. I think it's probably going to work less well against the unending pressure that is being president. And I think what we're going to see is if he does have early onset dementia, but certainly when he has narcissism, that the pressures of this job are going to crack him like an egg more than they have, you know, previous presidents. Obama, you know, when Obama turned into Grayskull in the course of his presidency, and he was uh, admittedly much more stable, it seems like. So, like, our, our sort of our next two questions lead me to sort of a question to help answer them. You know, our next two questions is essentially, like, why is this information useful uh, to us and not just name-calling? And, you know, can we make any predictions? The question I have is, in your experience, what happens when two narciss narcissists collide? Um... Well, I mean, obviously, fierce competition. Narcissists, you know, are going to try and be on top. There's only room on the pedestal for one. Narcissists can get along as long as one or the other of them is stroking the other's ego, positively reflecting on them, right? So that's how <clears throat> narcissistic leaders can form alliances that are to their mutual benefits, but if that condition ends and uh, something occurs where they are not benefiting each other, they will throw each other under the bus as quickly as possible. Because, like, ultimately what that leads me to is if, based on what you've said in the past, right, people who are narcissists are folks who have uh, thrived well in certain roles historically, culturally, in, as you had mentioned, I think, like, dictatorships and monarchs and whatnot. You know, what happens when him and Netanyahu disagree on something? Or what happens when other countries sort of collide with Trump in a way that could potentially have devastating outcomes for our country, potentially even the world? I think you just said it. 
can have potentially <laughs> devastating outcomes. Now, if it's someone like Netanyahu, it's less likely to because Israel is to a great extent dependent upon America, and Trump is certainly in the power position there. Uh, the same for somebody like Duterte in the Philippines. Um. <clears throat> On the other hand, if uh, push came to shove between he and Putin, I shudder to think right. what would happen. I think it's useful to talk about this uh, in the context of the Russian investigation. I've been following that pretty closely, and I'm yeah, did, more. Did and you more... watch any of the the CIA director? Uh, I saw some of Brennan um, totally destroying Gaudi, which was really entertaining because fuck Gaudi, um, <laughs> fuck that bastard. Uh, but that's a side side session. Um, what one of the reasons that I'm really interested in this narcissist issue, and we're gonna this this isn't gonna drop until um, about a month from so a month or so from now at least. So potentially we could have seen movement in this investigation, but. I'm willing to say if Trump is a narcissist, there's two ways this investigation can go. Either he's going to get pissed off and resign at some point because he's going to decide that everyone is being too mean to him and they don't understand his brilliance and he's going to take his ball and go home. Or they're going to eventually recommend charges and along the way He's going to kick and scream and make it much worse for himself because he's going to hate the fact that this is being dragged out. He's going to think it's fake. He's going to be angry at Mueller for doing due diligence. It's going to be just nastiness the whole way. And then when they they try to remove him from power, he's going to be a crazy person about it. He's going to go kicking and screaming, and it's not going to be the functional process that anyone seems to think it will be for some reason that I don't understand. Yeah, for me, like... I agree that those are the only two outcomes, and I hope that it's the first one, but the cynical void side of me says it's probably going to be the second, and the even darker side of it is because of the two completely different realities in people's minds as to what's happening specifically with Trump relative to Russia, and I'm talking about people who are mostly Democrats see what's going on in one light and people who are mostly Republicans and more specifically are mostly watching Fox News see it in a completely different light that yeah. there's potential here for there to be a huge country divide. I'm talking about civil war oh, stuff. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I agree. Whereas, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying it's going to be 50% versus 50%, but I do think... 30% of the population is going to come away from what's about to happen thinking that the left just uh, removed a, a sitting president because they politically did not like him. And that any evidence that comes forward from Comey is going to be viewed as tainted. Any charges brought are going to be viewed as tainted. This is going to be viewed literally as a coup by the deep state, and I can promise you that Trump the narcissist will fuel that paranoia. And that's, that's he, the, the fear I have right there. Sure. We saw it with the rigged election talk. A narcissist can't accept the idea that he might be losing, and so he will talk about things being rigged, and he will talk about it the same way when it's the FBI director recommending obstruction charges against him, I think. Right. You know, if he hasn't quit by then, there's not here. Here's, here's what I want to say. Someone might say, well, those are those two options are the only two options anyway. But I would say, no, he's not going to 
quietly sit out this investigation, let it play out, and accept what happens. Yeah, I don't that's see another him resigning. Option, I don't see him doing that. I mean, I, there is a. I mean, I think it's a less possible option than him fighting tooth and nail. But I could see because look, as a narcissist, I think we can also think reasonably that Donald Trump is not enjoying the presidency. It's not a fun job for anyone, and he's definitely not having fun. And as a narcissist, he wants to be having fun. He wants to be getting, you know, loved up by pretty people, and all of the pretty people have fled him because he tilted to, you know, far-right bigotry in order to get elected. I don't know. Gorsuch is pretty. I mean, I think he's kind of pretty. That's true. Gorsuch is, but, like, Gorsuch is probably going to be distancing himself from Trump before the end of this month anyway, so um, I think, yeah, I think he's miserable, and he might get miserable enough to quit, but he certainly, I don't think, is going to sit quietly and then continue to try to govern functionally or something like that. Yeah. Jesse, I'm kind of curious to know your your opinion. Uh, how do you think it could potentially, all of this could sort of potentially lead to? Well, uh, again, I, I agree that he could take his ball and go home. Bullies do that sometimes, and he is a classic bully. Uh, when they fear that they're facing uh, a near certain humiliation, they will save face. So that's one possibility. Um, I don't know. I don't know if he if I would like to see the second option happen, if only to see uh, a massive and protracted humiliation of somebody who deserves it. I have very strong feelings about him as a person and having dealt with toxic narcissists or malignant narcissists at times in my own life. Uh, I, I guess I have some very strong feelings about wanting a little bit of justice in the bully finally being vanquished. Um. Before we wrap up, there was something I wanted to include in all this that we didn't quite get to. There is one psychologist, um, last name Francis. Alan Francis. Alan Francis, who helped write the DSM section on narcissism and has been fairly sort of out there a couple of times saying uh, he thinks that, that Donald Trump is not a narcissist. And as far as we can tell, the key argument he presents is that Donald Trump's narcissism doesn't harm Donald Trump. So he's he rejects the part that we've kept harping on of the diagnosis where these particular features lead to harm for the individual. And I think that ties in really well with these predictions. If it's true that Donald Trump is an NPD, stuff like firing Comey is the evidence of his self-harm. Right. The fact that rather than let the investigation peter out quietly, he had to get so angry that he fired Comey and embroiled himself in obstruction charges is exactly what you would expect from self-harming narcissists. And it's also yeah. possible that, like, because we don't have his tax returns, we don't know. Some people have speculated, and it's—I've uh, heard rumors that some people have seen them, and they're not speculating, but I, I don't know how valid those arguments are. But it's, it's definitely possible that he's in massive amounts of debt, and so that could be construed, especially him as a pure capitalist, as a way of actually doing harm to himself. Oh, it, sure. Absolutely. Certainly, like, you know, we're all here fans of um, opening arguments. And if you listen to opening arguments description of how Donald Trump handled the XFL, yeah. you are listening to a narcissist lose a court battle. And I think that that's what we're about to see is a narcissist lose another court battle in a spectacular, global, world historic fashion. Here's hoping. That's that's my theory about what's going to happen. And, if, and, and you know, we'll put this in the can. We'll bring it out over the summer while I'm off doing art in the woods with children. And we'll see where we're at. If he's still in power by then, then 
that'll be great. And uh, if he's not, then we'll we'll uh, laugh at how effectively accurate we were. <laughs> yeah, uh, so. I, I don't know if you guys watched uh, Real Time with Bill Maher last week, but he made a prediction that uh, Trump is going to be out of office by Christmas. I wouldn't be surprised in one way or another. Yeah, and, and we talked some. You and we talked some about the investigation and how long things like Watergate took and how long this could take. But I do think Trump's narcissism will accelerate the process because of his own impatience. He'll bring it to a head faster rather than letting it play out naturally. Well, and, and I think like ultimately the case has to get done and the grand jury has to decide whether they're going to indict or not. And so I think that there are still processes that he has no control over and his actions won't have control over unless you see him like go out on a Pennsylvania Avenue and like shoot someone in the face. Like, I, I right. don't think, I don't think he's going to be able to expedite the process either way, even though he right. might try. I don't think that he'll actually. I think if he starts threatening Mueller on Twitter or fires Mueller or attempts to fire Mueller, he could accelerate the process by, by locking in a case for obstruction. Yeah. Right there's already enough data points for them to make a reasonable case for obstruction. And if he starts, you know, trying to shut down the investigation further at this point, he can make their case for them. And I think as a narcissist, that's what exactly what he's going to try to do. And the question is, can they keep him under wraps hard enough that he doesn't do that? Right. But ultimately the articles of impeachment have to get drawn up, uh, which is not relative to, that obstruction charge, right? That could be used yeah. in conjunction. Paul Ryan's hand is going to be forced eventually. Yeah, and so and that's why I think like ultimately there's there's not much he can do to I think accelerate or decelerate the process. That's that's just my opinion. Well, we'll see. I, I think you know I, I I don't want to say that I'm an expert on how long this is going to take. I only want to say that I'm fairly certain that if Donald Trump is a narcissist and we think he is he's going to make this worse and that making it worse is going to play out in making this at least happen, if not more quickly than more reliably than we could have predicted otherwise. And when it comes to prediction, we have to remember that we're in such an unusual situation mm -hmm. that, that this is so voidy. We yeah. don't know what the hell can happen. That's right. Because who could have believed that this shit could have happened? Yeah, it's true. It's, All right. It's been astonishing. I think, I think we've really, um, <clears throat> extended this up pretty effectively so um let's i think wrap it up there yeah yeah thank any, any any final thoughts anybody on this one well i i at the very least want to thank jesse for coming on and and hearing your expertise i'm a big believer in expertise which i know the notion of expertise is in decline uh uh, uh and i so hearing your perspective is i think a valuable and be appreciated your your pure opinion perspective, not diagnostic perspective. <laughs> right. Don't take advice from Thank my you. father about. Don't sue me. Don't sue my. Don't father. take um, psychiatric advice from this right. podcast. I do feel right. really good about this. I feel like what we are trying to do in this podcast is to do stuff like this that helps people better understand the void they're living in and why it is the way it is. And I think um, this is an issue that I have cared about since Trump first really seriously hit the scene. And I think that we've given people a lot of really useful information here. So thank you so much for coming uh, on and doing that, man. My pleasure to share the void with you gentlemen. All right. It, it's a good void. <laughs> it's I a, like, and I like it It's very a good much. void and I like it. <laughs> uh, the Apocalypse Now fans in the audience are losing it. <laughs> the rest of you are like, God, these fucking nerds. Okay. <laughs>
We would like to thank our new patrons, Jason Kennedy, Dalio Tepsa, hope I didn't butcher that, Joseph Mitchell, and Mark Landis. We'd also like to thank our top patrons, Dave Maslich and Jesse Rubinowitz. If you'd like to become a patron, find us at patreon.com slash embrace the void. As always, remember, you are the void and the void is you.